Thanks for joining me on episode 24 of the podcast, where I'm joined by Dr. Ben Sessa. Ben is a consultant psychiatrist, psychedelic therapist, and chief medical officer at Awaken Life Sciences, the UK's first provider of psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. Awaken is researching, developing, and delivering evidence-based psychedelic medicine to treat addiction and other mental health conditions. In today's episode, Ben talks to me about ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, otherwise known as CAP. We talk about the emergence of CAP and how it differs from ketamine infusion therapy, how someone trains to be a psychedelic therapist, ketamine and psychological flexibility, how safe ketamine is, how patients describe their experience of taking ketamine, and what the future holds for CAP. Hi Ben, thanks for joining me today. Hi James, great pleasure to be here, thank you for inviting me. Today we're going to talk about ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, which uh, is something that you've been heavily involved in. But before we talk about the research that you've been part of, I was wondering if we could start by giving an overview of the development of ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. Yeah, I think first thing to say about ketamine-assisted psychotherapy is it's different from just giving ketamine infusions for depression. So in the last 10 or 15 years, it was discovered that ketamine, with no psychotherapy, works as a short-acting, fast-acting antidepressant. Um, And a whole host of clinics have sprung up all over the world, particularly in Canada and North America, who simply infuse people with ketamine with no psychotherapy. Uh, You go along, you get attached to a drip, you get a load of ketamine um, on board, and then it works as an antidepressant, and it works for between days and weeks, and then it wears off and you have to have another shot. Um, That is not what we're doing with ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. With ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, or CAP as we call it, um, we combine ketamine with therapy in order for the patient to have a life-changing, transformative psychedelic experience, which allows them to tackle lasting mental health problems and then get better without having to keep getting top-ups of ketamine all the time. So it's certainly different from these ketamine clinics that don't do psychotherapy. Um, I'm trained in psychedelic therapies, having worked with MDMA, psilocybin and ketamine. And so we use ketamine in the same way as we might use psilocybin and MDMA um, to assist the psychotherapeutic process. And and that, that presents, that provides us with much longer lasting effects than just using it as an antidepressant. So am I right in thinking it evolved out of the ketamine infusion clinics? It, it more sort of evolved out of the MDMA and psilocybin psychotherapy protocols um, than it evolved out of the ketamine clinics. Um, yeah, because the people who, who give ketamine-assisted psychotherapy have usually got an interest and a training in those other psychedelics. Do you mind me asking, where does someone become trained in psychedelic therapies? It's a really good question, and there's a lot of debate there's no internationally agreed gold standard of what a psychedelic therapist is. So there's lots of different training courses all over the world that provide you with various different levels of training. Um, Many people train when they have a research study to do. So if you're doing a research study with MDMA, you would train just for MDMA. If you have a research study with psilocybin, you train with psilocybin. but there's no stat gold standard. Um, there's three or four places around the world that offer different levels of courses um, from kind of university grade courses to just experiential courses. Um, and there's a real lack of parity in the system at the moment about what a psychedelic therapist is. But I think an important aspect is um, you do need to be a clinician first. Um, 
you can't just uh, decide to become a, a psychedelic therapist if you're not already a therapist. So um, think of it as a specialist form of psychotherapy. So just like you wouldn't um, go on a three-week brain surgery course and become a brain surgeon, you might go on a three-week specialism brain surgery course when you're already a brain surgeon. Um, it's very important that the people we train as psychedelic therapists are already clinicians. So doctors, nurses, psychotherapists, counselors, um, people who already work with patients in a psychotherapeutic environment, and then they do psychedelic therapy as a bolt-on extra to that existing skill base. So similar to things like EMDR, schema therapy, yeah. DBT, yeah. yeah, add-ons to yeah. uh, where you have a foundation already. Yeah. You, and so the people we take into our training are already registered um, with a with a uh, a body like UK um, CP or you know one of these other registered counselling psychotherapy bodies, and then they do psychedelic therapy on top as a specialism. So am I right in thinking that your organisation Awaken offer training to health professionals? Yeah, so we have a training course which involves a number of different aspects online training modules, face-to-face um, -face lectures, experiential work by shadowing other, other therapists. At the moment, um, we're limiting our training program to our own staff because we're opening a whole load of clinics and we're, we're on a very strong employment and recruitment drive at the moment. Um, in time, once we've staffed and trained all our own clinics, we'll be able to roll out that training program to other people who are clinicians that wish to train in this modality. Just to come back to the research on ketamine assisted psychotherapy or CAP, what stage is it at at the moment? Is this something that's readily available or is it still in one of those phases of research? Well, you know, it's, it's fair to say that all psychedelic research is still in an early stage. Um, there are all kinds of psychedelic therapies um, that are being delivered um, at a research level. Um, the only psychedelic drug that is licensed as a medicine at the moment is ketamine. Um, so it is possible to get MDMA and psilocybin therapies, but only if you're a research subject on a research trial. Um, so ketamine psychedelic therapy is available as a treatment, not just as a research protocol. Um, and whilst there's an awful lot of research going on, it's fair to say that most of the studies are still small pilot studies with small numbers of patients. Um, that's changing very rapidly. Um, ketamine has a lot of research behind it because it's been around for a while as a treatment um, medicine. Um, and most of the research in ketamine today has been with treatment-resistant depression. And there's lots and lots of research on that, many papers on that. Um, using ketamine-assisted psychotherapy for other conditions, as we do at Awaken Life Sciences, including not just depression, but also anxiety disorders, PTSD, eating disorders, and a whole range of addictions. Um, there is less evidence for that, but that's growing all the time. And that's why we have a R and D department at um, Awaken to develop this research further and actually see ketamine-assisted psychotherapy um, licensed as a, as a treatment for um, addictions, particularly alcohol use disorder and behavioral addictions. So they're the ones that are really on the frontier, are they alcohol and behavioral addictions? Alcohol, certainly, you know, alcohol, um, uh, problems with alcohol is a massive 
public health care problem. It's huge. Um, it's estimated that 40% of people are drinking over the recommended amount of alcohol. And we would call that harmful use. Um, and around about 6% of people have full-blown alcohol dependency syndrome. And of course, those two conditions are linked because the more people who drink harmfully, um, the more are likely to move towards dependent drinking. So the rates of harmful use of drinking, which you could define as drinking over 14 units a week, um, and that having an impact on your psycho and social um, development and functioning, um, it was around about 25% of people pre-COVID. But post-COVID, it's, it's, it's now looking at over 35-40% of people who are drinking that much. So we're really looking at a massive epidemic of alcoholism in these post-COVID times. And it's a huge burden on individuals and families. Um, it's a huge burden financially, a uh, huge burden on the public health care system and the NHS. Um, and the sad thing is, the treatments are very poor. Um, relapse um, from, even with the very best gold standard medical treatments that we provide, um, are around about 80 to 90% at 12 months. 80 to 90% of people after the very best modern medicine can give you are drinking again by 12 months. Now that's a terrible outcome. And I can't think of any other parts of medicine that would accept that kind of an outcome. Um, after 100 years of modern psychiatry, we should be doing better than that. So the results that we've had from our care study are extremely um, promising indeed compared to the current best treatments that are out there. What is it about ketamine that can make that difference, let's say, with alcohol at least? So traditional psychotherapies or talk therapies are beneficial for many people. You use the talk therapy to explore the underlying issues behind the addiction in terms of trauma or negative experiences and negative life um, issues. And also and the psychosocial issues that often go with addiction, poverty, exclusion, racism, poor education, poor housing, um, lack of opportunities. All of these social factors are associated very strongly with um, most addictions. Um, and talk therapy can be effective for those things. But when we combine it with ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, it's um, the patient not only gets all that talk therapy to address those issues, but they get this experience with ketamine, which provides a unique mental state because of its biological action, which in combination with the psychotherapy allows the patient to develop new strategies, new opportunities, greater flexibility of thinking to tackle those, those rigid narratives that maintain their addictions. As you say, it, become, it, it really increases that psychological flexibility yeah and it it does that and we know that what's happening at a biological level with ketamine is it results in the growth of new dendrites which are the connections between nerve cells so by by taking the ketamine what we do in a way is we we put the patient into this state in which their brain is kind of ripe and bristling with new growth new sprouting of new connections is going on with the ketamine and then when we combine that with the talk therapy we can literally grow new pathways in the brain in in a way that you can't do with just typical talk therapy so it's um it's a combination of the psychotherapy to um set the agenda and um look at what are the psychological issues issues they want then then the drug comes in which then 
puts the brain into a plastic, fluid, flexible brain state um, to, to then grow these new pathways that result in new ways of thinking and new opportunities. How does ketamine differ in how plastic or fluid it makes our, our thinking process to those other popular psychedelics that are used, so MDMA and psilocybin? So it's a really good question, James, and it's a, a question that's not fully answerable at the moment. Um, ketamine certainly um, has this this neurogenesis, neuroflexibility effect to a very strong extent. Um, increasing evidence is coming out that MDMA also does this to some extent, and psilocybin and LSD and classic psychedelics also do it to some extent. So one answer to your question is they all do it to some extent. But ketamine does it very strongly. We know that. So, um, you know, it's 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 not that brains are ever static. Um, both your and my brain will be in different physical states after this conversation than they were before we started. Um, brains are always changing. Dendrites are always growing. But we do know that these psychedelic drugs, and particularly ketamine, are um, very strong agents at increasing this brain growth. The potential that it has to for brain growth and for to be shaped during this, uh, I guess, critical period, this window. What about the potential for that, you know, to not go so well? Is that, how do you prepare for that or how do you manage that should it happen? Yeah, so um, ketamine is on the whole a very gentle and tolerable experience. Um, it, is a, it is an altered state of consciousness. It's certainly the word that I hear more than anything else is weird. Um, it, 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 it creates an altered state of consciousness. There's no question of that. And in that respect, I would call it a psychedelic. Um, it's not a classic psychedelic, as as we might imagine LSD and psilocybin or DMT, um, but it is. It, it creates a psychedelic state, an altered state of consciousness. Um, it is also, as we know, before it was a psychedelic or recognized as such, it was an anesthetic drug. And because it's an anesthetic, um, the experience tends to be quite gentle. If you If you give or take too much ketamine, you simply fall asleep. Um, so it's actually very tolerable. Most people describe it as a dreamy, mildly sedative and strange experience. Um, and of course, the anaesthetists consider that an irritating side effect. I remember many years ago when I was uh, studying and working in, in uh, anaesthetics, the golden rule with ketamine was don't give too little or the patient will have a weird experience. So in a way, what we're doing when we give ketamine for psychiatric indications, we're kind of intentionally breaking the golden rule of anesthesia by giving too little, because it's that, it's that psychedelic experience that we want. But one of the things that makes ketamine so attractive in that respect is it is very, very safe physically. So whilst it may seem unusual or pioneering, or even potentially, uh, you know, uh, Maybe some people might think, you know, this is a strange thing for us to be doing. Um, ketamine itself is not new at all. Ketamine as a drug, as a medicine, has been around since the 60s. Ketamine is used every single day in um, casualty departments, in surgery departments, at much, much higher doses than we give. So when you give ketamine as an anesthetic, you're giving three to 400 milligrams, two to 400 milligrams um, to put the patient to sleep or use as an anesthetic. Um, we give in the region of 40 to 100 milligrams. So that makes it very attractive um, because we know it's so very, very safe physically. Um, and we're, we're, we're aiming for this, this therapeutic window in which they have this, they don't fall asleep, 
they're awake, but they get this um, unusual altered state of consciousness. And um, far from that being a sort of irritating side effect, as the anaesthetists might think it, we think that's a very valuable mental state to be in. And we can work in that psychedelic space um, alongside psychotherapy to help the patient to tackle these rigid narratives that maintain their addiction. The fact that it's a medical intervention has been used as a medical intervention for quite a while must really help put there being less stigma atta attached to it compared to maybe things like psilocybin or mdma as well as being kind of well researched been used for a while so that might maybe help with the progress in terms of research but i'm wondering if there's been any kind of barriers that you faced with researching um cap yeah i mean there are barriers i mean you're quite right there is a stigma that surrounds all of the psychedelic drugs and really this is uh very irritating um, effect of the war on drugs and the Misuse of Drugs Act that puts these drugs into uh, very restricted categories um, and has uh, poisoned the mind of the general public and indeed many health professionals to think that a drug that's used recreationally therefore is uh, useless, dangerous, addictive and of, of no benefit medically. It's simply not true, um, both for ketamine, MDMA and psilocybin. Um, but it does mean that we're, we, we have to uh, counter a lot of stigma. Um, you know, one, one, a great example of that is ketamine being labelled as this horse tranquilizer. I have no idea where that narrative came from. It's most bizarre. Ketamine is used way more in humans than it ever is in horses. Um, we never say, oh, penicillin, that dog antibiotic, do we? And penicillin is used in dogs all the time. So it's got this peculiar narrative um, which um, I urge you and your listeners to tackle whenever they hear that. It's very much a human medicine and it's used. Indeed, ketamine is the anesthetic of choice in children and the elderly because it's so safe. So if you've got a four-year-old a four in casualty and you need them to have analgesia or anesthesia, you'll reach for the ketamine bottle rather than other anesthetics because it's so safe. So that does make it very um, attractive to use in our clinic where we're using much, much lower doses as you might use in a young person. But stigma does exist. And just going back to your question, you know, what do we do about this? Well, patients are very carefully selected. They're screened. They are monitored. Um, patients receive complete support throughout the ketamine experience. They have a therapist that's with them throughout the whole journey, sits with them during the experience. We monitor vital signs like breathing and heart rate and blood pressure. Um, we screen certain patients out before bringing them into the program. Um, patients with uh, severe risk of heart disease or severe liver or renal problems. Um, and patients with a risk of psychosis. So we can absolutely reassure our patients that safety is paramount. And indeed, this is then reflected in results that we, we see very little in the way of adverse events. Um, the main adverse event that you, you would get with ketamine patients in our clinic would be some mild nausea. And that's also very rare. That's about one in 100 cases. So um, it's a very, very convenient drug to use clinically. Let's say someone was to access cap for addictions and um, I, I wonder would they have some uh, uncertainty around the idea of using a substance and relapsing and um, is that a common fear or is it a problem at all with cap for addictions uh, so are, are you what is the question about by being given ketamine therapy that might result in further addiction mm, yeah um so in terms of addiction to ketamine it's rare 
ketamine addiction does exist. Um, it exists in, in recreational ketamine use, not in clinical use. If you're a very heavy daily user of ketamine, for example, injecting ketamine at high doses on a very, on a, every day on a regular basis, then addiction can occur. Now, of course, that's not how we use it at all. We, we give three or four injections of ketamine spaced weeks apart, um, and that's the course. So risk of addiction to ketamine in the clinical setting is very low, and it's actually very low in the, in the recreational use of ketamine as well. Um, so addiction to ketamine itself is very unusual. Um, the concept that giving medicines to treat addictions is not new. Um, you know, we use methadone, we use buprenorphine, we use benzodiazepines to treat a whole host of addictions, like opiate addictions. And so giving, giving a drug to come off other drugs is not, is not an unusual concept. And the way I often look at this is, um, you know, there's very few things you can do to yourself, James, that's worse than drinking a bottle of vodka a day. There's no medical intervention that's worse than a bottle of vodka a day. So if by using a few um, courses of ketamine, gets you off a bottle of vodka a day, then it absolutely satisfies that risk-benefit um, ratio. So um, using drugs to come off drugs is not new, and these are much, much safer drugs than the drugs the patients are addicted to. So again, it, it makes perfect sense. The course of treatment that your patients go through, is it short-term treatment, you know, kind of 6 to 12, or how many sessions... Um, of CAP do they usually have in the research stage at least? So once the patient goes through the screening process and they have a medical assessment and they reach eligibility, um, for the CAP course, um, which is what we provide for people with depression, anxiety, PTSD, eating disorders, um, it's an eight-week course. And like all psychedelic protocols, it's a mixture of drug and non-drug sessions. And I think that's important for your listeners to understand. The way we use ketamine-assisted psychotherapy is like, well, like we might do with MDMA or psilocybin therapy. The non-drug sessions are vitally important. It's not just getting the drug. Um, so the eight-week course involves 11 visits, four of which they get ketamine with, and the others are non-drug sessions. It's very important to have these preparation sessions and then post-drug integration sessions. So um, in the CAP course, it's eight weeks, 11 visits, and four of which are ketamine-assisted, and the other are non-drug face-to-face psychotherapy sessions. Okay, so there's a combination of just ketamine, ketamine and psychotherapy, and just psychotherapy, is that right? Um, on the ketamine days, um, there is also some psychotherapy, either side of the, the, the medicine injection. Um, ketamine itself lasts about an hour. We use an intramuscular injection, and very few patients actually talk during that hour. Um, with MDMA therapy, there's often a lot of talking during the drug experience. Ketamine is very much, it's a bit more like psilocybin in that the patient is in the drug experience in silence, listening to music on headphones with eye shades on throughout that hour. So we'll do 15, 20 minutes of talk therapy first, then they'll go through for the one hour drug experience. Then when they come down off the drug experience, they'll take off their eye shades and the headphones and they'll do some talk therapy after that. But during the course of the drug effects, it's very unusual for a patient to talk. So you say very different to the MDMA assisted therapy. I, I, I previously spoke to Shannon Carolyn 
from MAPS and I think they do kind of eight hour sessions where you have two therapists and there seems to be a lot more talking in it. Absolutely. And I, I am trained in that model, modality and have carried out um, many MDMA assisted psychotherapy sessions. I mean, even with the MDMA, there's also a lot of time when the patient is what we call inside with the eye shades and the headphones on. But then they also do take them off and sit up and talk for a bit and then maybe go back inside again. Um, so there is more talking in the drug experience with MDMA. But with ketamine, um, most patients don't want to talk. Um, they, they just want to be with the drug experience. And then when the drug wears off, that's when you do the talk therapy. How might your patients describe their experience of taking ketamine? Uh, that's a good question. So it's quite a variable um, responses that we get. Um, like I said earlier, it is predominantly positive and tolerable. Um, you know, you mentioned bad trips. Um, they're rare bad trips on ketamine. Um, it is, as I said, an anesthetic. It does have a, a very sedative type effect. So the patient is very much comfortable in the in the experience. Now, what, what patients experience varies. Some patients have visual um, hallucinations or closed eye hallucinations under the eye shades. Um, sometimes they take the form of geometric shapes and patterns. Sometimes they take the form of people or places or landscapes um, a lot of people describe a sense of movement sort of either like traveling in a car or flying in an airplane or being on a roller coaster or or rippling over a sea there's quite a sense of movement that goes with with the experience um the, the most important part and this is really understood in the term dissociation it's uh, it's, it's described as a dissociative anesthetic it it has this ability to separate out the parts of self and now just to explain that if we think of we describe ourselves with many different parts and labels and narratives um including the bad parts and a patient with depression may say you know i am useless i am a failure um i am worthless um and predominantly they live their lives with those parts of themselves um being intrusive and predominant and um, what ketamine does is it sort of separates all those parts and sort of lays them all down on the table and they can see the good bits of themselves as well as the difficult and bad and challenging because it separates those parts out. And that's very, very powerful as a psychotherapeutic tool because it allows you then in the talk therapy to say, look, there's more than one version of you. There's the version that you don't like, the bad bits, the negative parts, but there's also these good versions that you'd like to be. And the ketamine provides a, a waking state, um, almost pictorial version of, of oneself. And that allows the person to pick apart these different parts of themselves and then focus on the parts they want. So then when you do the talk therapy outside of it, they can say, I want to keep that part of me that I like and is confident and strong and able, but I can see, having been in that ketamine experience, that there's these depressive parts but I can see how I can separate myself from those and not have them weighing on my shoulders all of the time. So it allows you to sort of change the priorities of the parts of self that you'd like to focus on. And so when combined with the talk therapy, it's a very powerful tool. That's so interesting. It's like, um, I'm not sure if you've heard of the Fraser's Associative Table um, technique where in therapy you get someone to kind of imagine these different parts of them and if they were to be in like a boardroom, to have a table there what who would come who would enter and um, so that's where that'd be guided by therapy this seems to happen 
spontaneously, naturally. Yeah, absolutely. And that's and, you know, there's another there's a, another system called family systems therapy, which which does a similar thing. It allows you to separate out the parts of yourself, because, as you know, you people wear depression. They wear it like a heavy bag and it defines them. And um, by separating out their depression from their other parts of self, we can then change the salience or amplitude of the depression as they move forward. You know, they may they may still always have it. Um, they may still see it and, and recognize it as an aspect of themselves, but does it have to be so invasive and defining of them in the future? And the therapy in combination with the ketamine experience is a very powerful tool to do that. Yeah, it's, uh, you mentioned uh, internal family systems there, something that I probably bring up nearly every episode. And there's an idea in that as us being blended. That's kind of what you're saying. We mightn't even realize that that part is in the driving seat. We just think it's who we are, whereas maybe it's like a protective part or uh, an exile part. And that that yeah. helps you unblend, which is a what, one thing that you're looking to do in internal family systems. And um, think talking about therapies, therapeutic techniques. What are the therapies? What's the modalities or the background uh, or the, the the ideas that the therapies that you use are rooted in um so what is like the psychological model that surrounds exactly the, the, yeah therapy? well it depends somewhat on the diagnosis so um there, there may be a different therapeutic slant if it's a patient with depression or ocd or ptsd um or addictions now when it comes to addictions we have developed um, this um, unique um, so, uh, therapeutic model called CARE, which um, is based on the CARE study, which um, Awaken Life Sciences have run, um, which is specifically aimed at um, relapse prevention in alcohol use disorder. Um, many aspects of the psychological model with ketamine are drawn from the ACT model, acceptance and commitment therapy, which lends itself very well to the ketamine experience, because that's very much about accepting the different parts of self and committing to changing those. Um, and so we use a lot of the care language and the care model around the psychotherapy sessions with ketamine. Mm, no, that, that's so interesting. I really like the acceptance and commitment therapy model for so many reasons. Um, gives a lot of direction and puts a, a significant emphasis on our values, what's important to us, because I don't think you, if you're looking for changes, it's hard to make changes without considering what it is that's important to you. I'm wondering how you got involved in the, the world of psychedelic assisted psychotherapy, Ben, given that your background is in psychiatry. Yeah, so um, I was interested in psychedelics as a teenager. Um, I was interested in psychedelic music and psychedelic literature and the history of psychedelics. Um, and then I went to medical school and I studied medicine. Uh, I wasn't even sure at that stage whether I wanted to be a psychiatrist or not, but I studied medicine. I then went on to do psychiatry. And because I was already well read and knew all about the history of psychedelics in medicine, in psychiatry, when I did my psychiatry training, I would ask my tutors, you know, what do you know about LSD psychotherapy in the 60s and 50s? It was a really big thing. And of course, they all said, you're crazy. What are you talking about? That never happened. And I said it did. Um, and I, I ended up writing a paper in 2004 um, that when I was still a trainee psychiatrist. And that became the, the first published paper on psychedelics since the 60s in the UK medical press. And um, very quickly found a, at that time, tiny group of international researchers 
this was uh, when Maps was 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 there, um, and started going to conferences, started writing more papers and editorials. Um, there was no other doctors in the UK involved in this at that time. I then met Professor David Nutt in 2007, a psychopharmacologist, when he was in Bristol at the time, and I was working in Bristol. I joined his department. He started to get interested in psychedelics, and we then started to do psychedelic research. Um, in 2009, I became the first person in the UK to be legally administered a psychedelic when I was injected with intravenous psilocybin by David Nutt in Bristol. Um, and that was the first study in the UK. And then since then, um, have been involved in psychedelic research projects with psilocybin and DMT and ketamine and MDMA and LSD. Um, and just seen the whole, um, the whole sphere grow so much in the last 15, 20 years that I've been involved in it. Um, so the other thing that's driven me all this time is, is not, I mean, I, I guess I'm one of these rare psychiatrists that has an equal interest in both psychopharmacology and psychotherapy. I've always been fascinated by psychotherapy and I've done a lot of psychotherapy training over the years, but also been really interested in drugs and pharmacology. And so for me, psychedelic assisted psychotherapy is this perfect marriage of the two, um, using drugs in a focused, clever, creative way with minimal invasiveness to provide an adjunct to psychotherapy. So in many ways, it's breaking the rules of psychotherapy. When I started out on this, you know, the narrative from psychologists and psychotherapists was very much, you don't do psychotherapy on the altered patient. Um, if the patient appears to be in any way altered, you know, smelling of alcohol or whatever, you, you cancel the session. And psychedelic psychotherapy is very different. It's like we, we're intentionally doing psychotherapy on the chemically altered patient because we believe that provides a deeper sense of psychotherapy that is more productive. But the, other, the main thing that's driven me during all these years, James, is not just my interest in the subject, but also the recognition that current psychiatric treatments are failing my patients. And seeing so many patients kept in maintenance therapy, daily SSRIs, daily hypnotics, daily neuroleptics, daily mood, house, mood enhancers, which in my opinion just mask the symptoms, but don't get to the core of the problem, which is usually trauma. So we, we've had this top-down biological psychological model, um, a psychiatric model of the last 40 or 50 years, um, in which patients have to take these medicines every single day, day in, day out, to mask symptoms, but not get to the underlying cause. And I've always believed that psychotherapy is the only way to cure patients, um, not medicines. Medicines don't cure patients, medicines maintain patients. And, and don't get me wrong, I'm not an anti-psychiatrist. There is a place for SSRIs, there's a place for antipsychotics, there's a place for all of these drugs, but they are over-prescribed and they're not always effective in many, many patients. Um, but focused drug-assisted psychotherapy is to get people off medication. So on the one hand, it looks like, oh, here's the psychiatrist with yet another drug for us, but this is a drug to come off drugs. Um, I'm interested in psychedelics because I see them as a way out of this maintenance model of psychiatry that we've painted ourselves into this corner with over the last 50 years. My take on it is it's not just the drugs that are overprescribed and not necessarily effective, um, but I guess also therapy can be overprescribed and not necessarily effective. Like say CBT in the UK is heavily prescribed for any kind of presentation in the first instance. And I wonder if this also addresses that, the ineffectiveness of some therapies, it helps to make them more effective. 
Yeah, do you know, well, you have a slightly different experience to me. If only psychotherapy was overprescribed. My, my main problem with psychotherapy is lack of access. You know, um, you, you wait 16, 18, 20 months in the NHS, and then you get six sessions of CBT delivered by a junior therapist in training, and then that's it, and then you're at the back of the queue. That's very poor, you know. So the main problem is people can't access psychotherapy. Um, you, as a therapist would have a more nuanced position to say that CBT is overprescribed. Um, we certainly could do with more um, creative approaches to psychotherapy. Um, the other thing, and again, you may disagree with me here, James, in your experience, but 30 years as a psychiatrist, I think pretty much all the psychotherapies, whether it's CBT, EMDR, IPT, CAT, trauma-focused therapy, exposure therapy, um, they all kind of boil down to one thing, in my opinion, which is let's talk about your pain. Let's go to your trauma. Let's talk about your difficult experiences. Let's build up a therapeutic relationship between us and then you will share your pain with me. Now, and there's many, many different models of doing this. And forgive me if that's a gross oversimplification, but that's how it feels to me. And this is a good model and it works for many people. They talk about their trauma, their rape, their childhood experiences. They learn relaxation techniques. They learn to um, extinguish the, the fear response that goes with it. And it's effective for many people. But there's a high treatment resistance, PTSD, 50 to 60% treatment resistance, because they simply cannot go there. They'll talk about anything but that night when they were 10 years old and that thing happened. And by the time they're in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, they've become an absolute expert at avoiding that conversation. So therefore, they, they, they get stuck. They can only go so far in psychotherapy, and then they disassociate, they drop out, they go back to the vodka, they go back to the heroin, and they, they just can't get past it. And this is where the psychedelic therapies come in. The psychedelic provides this platform, this mental state in which the patient can go there. They feel, and it's more than simply just disinhibition. Um, you know, psychedelics are a lot more um, sophisticated than just disinhibition. Uh, you know, a bottle of vodka will cause disinhibition, but you can't do psychotherapy on a bottle of vodka. It's a messy drug. Um, so um, psychedelic therapies very, very uniquely switch off the right bits, but allow the patient to do the work. And so it really is clever, focused psychotherapy in an altered state of consciousness that allows the patient to address these issues that normally they would avoid and would normally be taboo for them. Um, and it's quite amazing to see the people moving forward in these psychedelic assisted therapies um, in this way. I'm wondering how that progress is measured. How this is measured? Yeah, the, the progress that they make, you know, let's say the research, you know, is there specific outcome measures that you take? Is it kind of in an interview basis? How do you measure improvement? Yeah, so certainly in Awaken Life Sciences and the patients going through our, our ketamine-assisted psychedelic psychotherapy service, um, we, we take pre and post measures of standardized rating scales, some of which are um, uh, diagnosis specific and some of which are broader. Um, and we do them before and we do them after to demonstrate uh, a quantitative change. Um, I think another way of measuring it is how many people need to come back for more and how many people have life-changing transformative experiences. I wish I had that data, but we've only been open clinically for around about three or four months. So 
um, I'm looking forward to seeing how that works in the longer term. I think what, what is clear is if you look at the psychedelic studies of the last 15, 20 years, whatever psychiatric indication and whatever compound, so whether it's depression, anxiety, PTSD, addictions, and whether it's MDMA, psilocybin or ketamine, the results have been staggering, staggering. Every single one of these studies has had very, very positive results that blows out of the water the current tr traditional treatments, um, which are combinations of psychotherapy or SSRIs or whatever. So um, it is relatively in its infancy, infancy stage in terms of large data pools of hard data, but the pilot studies and the phase two studies have been extremely promising. So at the very least, um, the need for more of this research is is vital. And what's interesting now, James, is we're we're moving away from pure academic research and we're moving towards actually developing healthcare systems. And that's why at Awaken Life Sciences, as a biotech company, we're not just interested in research and development, but we're also building bricks and mortar clinics. We're actually providing a platform for delivery. So we want to become the premier high street presence of where to go to get psychedelic therapies. Now at the moment, ketamine is the only licensed medicine, so it's only ketamine-assisted psychedelic therapy. But think of it as Awaken Life Sciences, ketamine therapy now, MDMA and psilocybin coming soon. So as soon as we get the approvals of these drugs, we'll start using them and we'll hit the ground running with a whole network of, of nationwide and Europe-wide clinics for patients to come to have these treatments. And that's kind of expected, from my understanding, in the next maybe kind of three to four years. Would that be right? Yep. So we have two clinics operational at the moment, one in Bristol and one in Oslo. We are about to open the London clinic. I was there last week visiting it, and it's a very lovely place. Um, and then we're looking at expansion um, in further Norwegian um, clinics and then beyond into other Nordic countries and also throughout the UK, um, England, uh, and and uh, Scotland and Ireland and Wales as well. Um, Manchester is in our sites, um, and then hopefully Dublin and Edinburgh and Birmingham. So we're looking at 20 to 25 clinics over the next three to four years. How accessible will it be economically? I can appreciate this is early doors and that things are usually a lot more expensive before they become more readily available. But how, how, yeah, how accessible is it? Well, you know, like most new innovative treatments, they start out in private medicine. Um, I'm a socialist, I'm a supporter of the NHS, I'm a worker for the NHS, um, and there's nothing I want more than to see this on the NHS. Um, and we're working with the NHS and we're working with insurance providers um, in pilot schemes to get this off the ground and get this free on public health care. At the moment, it's self-funded, so it's private, and um, patients need to pay and it has a certain cost. Um, as a doctor, I don't care who pays that cost. I don't care whether it's the CCG, NICE, the NHS, Booper, AXA, one of the insurance companies, or a patient that's got the money in their pocket. The bottom line is it costs money to do, um, and at the moment you have to pay. Um, but I long for the day when this is free on public healthcare. We're doing this at Awaken Life Sciences to bring psychedelic healthcare to the masses. And we're targeting um, disorders that are common. We're not targeting niche disorders. You know, alcoholism is a hugely big 
It's a massive public health care problem that has current poor outcomes. So psychedelic therapies to the masses is very much our goal. And the sooner we can get the NHS to fund this, the better. I often get asked in talks, you know, why doesn't the NHS pay for this? And my simple answer is ask the NHS. Um, there's nothing I want more than the NHS to be paying for this. And it certainly is our goal. Hopefully that will be the case as time unravels, Ben, and that the efficacy of these treatments seems to super um, to, to be much greater than what we currently have available. And, but that is all we have time for, Ben. I really appreciate you giving up your time and expertise today. Um, that was uh, extremely informative and we got through a lot of, covered a lot of ground. Great. Well, thank you very much, James, and thank you for the exposure. And, uh, you know, do um, urge your listeners to look at the Awaken Life Sciences website. And there's a clinics website as well where patients can self-refer and sign up and uh, come and visit our clinics and uh, have these treatments.